What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 8, Pre-Columbian Central America and Colombia. Today we'll continue our tour of pre-Columbian Latin America. After six episodes there, we are finally moving south, out of the Mesoamerican region. Originally, this episode and the next were going to be one. I have discovered, however, that there was just too much material. I have split it into two linked episodes. By the end, we will have dealt with Central America, Colombia, Venezuela and the Caribbean. We will, however, be excluding the Amazon region found in the south of Colombia and Venezuela. This will have its own episode. So, let's begin. The Mesoamerican region extends down to cover Guatemala and Belize. It does, however, also encroach onto the very northern parts of Honduras and El Salvador. The large Mayan city of Copan can be found in Honduras, for example. Most of Central America, however, does not form part of this region. This long, thin region snakes down to meet South America. In terms of pre-Columbian history, it's long been seen as an intermediate zone between the great centres of Mexico and the Andes. The standard thinking goes that these people were less developed and probably strongly influenced by their neighbours. The same can be said for Colombia, Venezuela and the Caribbean. As a result, much less research has been done into these areas. Admittedly, this is because we don't have as many of the great archaeological sites here to excavate. On the other hand, more research could be done. Hopefully by the end of this episode you'll have some idea of the peoples who lived in this vast area. Furthermore, I hope you'll have some appreciation of their achievements and their societies. Let's start in the north then, in El Salvador, and work our way down. One of the largest ethnic groups in the country are the Pipil. 
Interestingly, these people speak a language related to Nahuatl. This was, as you may remember, the language family spoken by the tribes of the north of Mexico. These included the Aztec, who spoke Nahuatl themselves. While the Aztecs and most of the other Nahuatl tribes stopped around central Mexico, the Pipil must have kept going. They continued south through the Mayan lands to settle down in El Salvador. It is thought that they first arrived around the 9th century and that they were possibly followed by another related group a century later. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that they split off from the Toltec people. Some may have continued even further south, to Nicaragua. There was a tribe there called the Nicarau, who are said to have spoken a variant of Nahuatl and who give the country its name. Once they reached El Salvador, the Pipil people settled down and formed several independent states. These were fairly organised, with developed economies, but they weren't anything like as grand as their northern cousins. They still exist as an ethnic group in El Salvador today, although they have lost their language and much of their culture. That said, recently there have been attempts to revive the language. The Pipil were not the only people to inhabit the area. As far as we know, the truly indigenous people of El Salvador were the Lenca. While they too still exist today, we know even less about them. There is some debate about this, due to the language being extinct, but it's thought that the Lenca form part of a macroethnic and linguistic family group known as the Chibkans. Now many of you may be familiar with the concept of ethno-linguistic family groups. For those that aren't, however, I want to give a brief outline of how they work. Understanding them will help a great deal in understanding how the different peoples of these next two episodes relate to each other. The theory goes that at one point, a proto-group lives in one place. These people share the same customs and speak the same language. Gradually, members of this group begin to migrate in different directions. As time and distance separate them, they start to develop differences in language and culture. These changes can happen quite quickly. Culture will often adapt to the environment which it finds itself in. Language changes quickly as well. Just look at how young people repurpose and create words in English. 50 years ago, the word cool wouldn't have had the meaning that it does today. Gradually, these differences grow and grow until two different languages, which may have started out from the same root, become completely unrecognisable and unintelligible. The same process simultaneously happens with culture. Of course, these groups themselves will then splinter. Subgroups will emerge with their own languages and culture. Let me give you an example. In Western Europe, you can find the Germanic language family. This includes, amongst others, German, Dutch, English, Norwegian and Danish. The cultural traditions of these peoples are not too dissimilar. They are, however, distinct. Likewise, they each have their own language, although there are similarities between them. Some of them are, to a certain degree, mutually intelligible. Some Germans have told me that they can understand Dutch, even if they can't speak it themselves. I myself lived in the Netherlands for a year. I can by no means speak Dutch. However, after some time, I started to notice with written Dutch that I could understand some of the words. They had similar roots to those of English. The word strat is one example. 
It means street in English. This is due to the common root of the languages. When the Angles, Saxons, Frisians and Jutes migrated from the Netherlands, Germany and Denmark to Britain, they brought their languages with them. Over time, however, these languages mixed and they started to diverge from those spoken on the mainland. They came together to form English, a new related but distinct language. The same process, of course, happened back in Europe. This led to the modern languages of Danish, Dutch and German. All these Germanic languages are just one branch of a much larger family known as the Indo-European language group. Now this has all been explained in great detail over many episodes at the History of English podcast. If you are really interested in this subject, go and have a listen. What follows, however, is a basic overview. The Indo-European group includes languages stretching all the way from Western Europe to India and China. At one point, a very long time ago, a group of people would have moved out of Africa and into Asia. As they split up and went in separate directions, of course, their languages and cultures diverged. By looking at these languages, we can start to see when the different people split off from each other. This is why the concept of language families is so useful. We can use it to piece together how different groups are related to each other, and when people first started to inhabit an area. You can think of it like a tree. At the very bottom of the tree is the Proto-Indo-European language spoken by that first group. As they began to split up, different branches started to grow. Sanskrit, for example, the ancestor of many Indian languages, is one branch. Proto-Germanic is another. This was the ancestor of all those Germanic languages I mentioned before. Other Indo-European branches include Proto-Slavic and Proto-Iranian. Of course, these branches themselves then split. The Germanic branch splits into its various languages. The Slavic branch splits into Russian, Polish, Czech and all the other languages in the Slavic family. Thanks to this, we know that the Slavic peoples arrived in Europe at a different time to the Germanic ones. We also know that the Hungarians and the Finnish are not related to their neighbours, but are in fact related to each other, despite the distance. They are not Indo-European languages, which means their ancestors came from a completely different place to the rest of the Europeans. The two peoples must also at some point have come from the same place. I think by now you've probably started to understand how language families work, and why they're important. This is a tangent that it's very tempting to go off on, but I need to get back to the subject matter. We can use the Maya to apply this concept to the area that this podcast covers. The various Maya groups spoke different languages. They were, however, all related. By examining their languages, we can tell which cities were Mayan, and which ones weren't. We are, of course, helped by their culture, their art, architecture and religion, which, while slightly differing between cities, is very similar throughout the Mayan world. Maya, then, can be considered an ethno-linguistic family. Similarly, we know that the Pipil people of El Salvador are related to the Aztecs thanks to similarities in language and culture. It's thanks to these similarities that we know that they must have migrated from northern Mexico. 
it's worth quickly noting that this is a theoretical model. It holds up pretty well, but of course, real life is more complicated. Words and cultural practices can develop out of nowhere. Sometimes words and practices are borrowed from nearby, completely unrelated languages and cultures. This can, when there's not much evidence to go on, make it very difficult to work out where a language and people fit into a language family, or, indeed, if they do at all. Hence the confusion about whether the Lenka form part of the Chibkan family or not. Let's get back to them now, and continue our look at Central America. The various Chibkan people make up most of the indigenous population of Central America, as well as some of Colombia and the western part of Venezuela. It is proposed that the proto-Chibkan people migrated north at some point from South America, probably Colombia, and in doing so settled Central America. Another theory is that their homeland was originally in Costa Rica and that they spread out north and south from there. The language family has three main branches. The Lenca languages form the northern branch. Just to their south is the Misumalpan branch. This includes the Mesquito, Sumo and Matagalpa people. These people inhabited the area on the Atlantic side of Nicaragua. This is a jungled, remote and inaccessible area. Because of this, the Mesquito and Sumo have survived. They retain their language and their culture. The Matagalpa, however, live closer to the main population centre of Nicaragua. As a result, they have become extinct, or at least been bred into the mestizo population of Nicaragua, losing their culture and language along the way. The third and largest branch of the Chibcans can be found in the south. They inhabit Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia and Venezuela. Unfortunately, I cannot provide too much information about the two northern branches. We do, however, know a bit more about the southern branch. As a general rule, these people were more developed and left behind some interesting archaeological sites. In Costa Rica, for example, lived the Discus people. Across the south of the country, they left behind hundreds of stone spheres. These vary in size. The smallest can be held in your hand. The largest are around seven feet. That's taller than a human. Although these are not decorated with carvings, it's impressive that these people managed to build near-symmetrical spheres. To the human eye, most appear to be perfectly spherical. While in reality, they're not completely, they are very close. When built, they may have been. It could just be weathering that has caused them to deviate. They are thought to have been built between the years 500 and 1500 AD. Some are located close to man-made earthworks. These may have been buildings. It's possible that these were palaces, or perhaps sacred sites. Burials have been found nearby. We don't know much else about the people who created them. It is, however, an impressive piece of work. Much effort must have gone into building them and transporting them. In recognition of this, UNESCO has designated them a World Heritage Site. It was in Colombia that the Chibcans created their most advanced cultures. In the northeast of the country sit the Sierra Nevada Mountains, these are pretty high. There are glaciers at the top of some of them. 
but they also sit very close to the Caribbean coastline. This makes for an extremely diverse environment, and it's here that the Tyrona people made their home. These people organised into chiefdoms. They built cities and created a large-scale trading network. One such city is the Ciudad Perida, known as Tayuna in the local language. Ciudad Perida is the Spanish for lost city. It is called this because it's hidden away in the jungled mountains of the Sierra Nevada. It was only discovered in 1972. At its peak, it was home to several thousand people, but it was abandoned during the Spanish conquests. Having been occupied around the year 800 AD, it must have been lived in for at least 600 years. Today the site consists of a series of stone terraces, built on top of and into the side of the mountains. These are connected by stone paths and steps. It's a spectacular place, and it can be visited. It takes six days to hike there and back, however. Much of the site is unexcavated, and we know little about it. This is partially due to its remoteness, and because it was discovered so late. Political reasons have also contributed, however. Until recently, the area was unsafe. Both left-wing rebels and drug cartels used the area as a base. Despite the lack of excavation, what we do know is that this is the mark of a complex society. A small group of simple farmers would not have been able to build this. This is backed up by Spanish accounts of the Tyrona at the time of conquest. They talk of a thriving society along the Caribbean coastline. They created intricate gold, jewellery and statues. The precious metal was thought to have some kind of religious significance. While the Tyrona civilization is gone, their descendants, known as the Kogi, still exist in the area. They are a common sight in that part of the country, and they're easily recognisable because of their distinctive clothing. Apart from the city itself and the beautiful landscapes, one of the highlights of doing the Ciudad Perida trek is visiting the Kogi people. Many still live in a traditional manner in their villages up in the hills. You will pass through many of these while doing the trek. The Kogi say that the lost city was never lost to them. They never stopped visiting, but they chose not to share it with the outside world. By studying the Kogi, we can learn a little bit about how their ancestors may have lived. They wear long white robes and gourd-shaped hats. They wear shoulder bags, which they weave themselves. They also chew coca leaves. It is rare to see a Kogi man without his papora gourd, which they scratch with a stick in order to create a coca paste. The consumption of coca is an ancient practice, and it's common throughout the Andes. It provides a mild high, similar to drinking too much coffee. It is used to suppress hunger and combat altitude sickness. In recent decades, it's of course been discovered that coca can be processed and turned into cocaine. This has, of course, caused many problems in the West and in South America. This has then led to many attempts to eradicate the coca crop, bringing many indigenous people into conflict with the authorities. Few of the indigenous people of South America are cocaine users, and many consider it an integral part of their culture and sometimes religion. We shouldn't, therefore, judge the Kogi or other native people for their use of coca. The Kogi are largely a secretive bunch. This is partly because of their conflict with the Spanish, 
and partly because they have suffered during Colombians' recent civil strife. Most have retreated away from the coast and into the mountains. This can make it hard to learn about their culture, as they don't often like sharing it. There are, however, two documentaries in which they open up to a British filmmaker about their beliefs. These beliefs are probably quite similar to those that the Tyrona had. They place great emphasis on protecting the earth, and they worship nature as a mother goddess. This worship is organised by their priests, who spend several years during their childhood in exclusion in caves while they prepare for their duties. They believe that the whole world is connected, so damage to one place causes damage in others. In these two documentaries, they make a heartfelt plea to the rest of the world, which they refer to as the little brother, that they need to stop damaging the environment. The two documentaries are called The Elder Brother's Warning and Aluna. If you find this sort of thing interesting, I wholeheartedly recommend you watch these films. Unfortunately, we don't know much else about the historic Tyrona. Despite leaving behind several ruined settlements, some beautiful art and artefacts, and a descendant people, we have very little information about how they lived and what they believed. The Spanish killed many of them, and worked very hard to wipe out their cultural practices. There was another Chibcan civilization in Colombia, however, one that we know a lot more about. Next episode, we will examine the Muisca. Until then, thanks for listening. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.